Welcome to Get Unstuck. Move forward with your life with Jason Hopkins. Over the next hour, you will be given valuable tips and tools you can use to overcome what keeps you stuck. Now, here is Jason. Welcome to Get Unstuck, Move Forward With Your Life. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins. Thank you for joining us today. Get Unstuck Radio is inspired by my own journey of navigating this thing called life. More than a decade ago, I faced my own dark night of the soul, a painful chapter that robbed me of my mind, my money, and my way. After a series of catastrophic setbacks upended a lifetime of work, I was left with two choices, to end it all or to begin again. Fortunately, with a mustard seed of faith, I chose to walk forward with a new commitment to serve others. Over the last decade, I have faithfully worked to evolve the narrative of how the world sees mental health. By recognizing that everyone struggles, sometimes we all need new insight and a different perspective to see life more clearly. Not only is this show the birthplace of my own efforts to overcome life's challenges, but a safe space to meet other champions who, even after setbacks, still bravely show up and serve others. Get Unstuck Radio highlights the phenomenal people who have joined me along the way. It is a place to share their stories, which hopefully will spark inspiration in your own life. Together, we celebrate our individual capacity to move forward and get the lives we truly desire. Each week, a distinguished guest will share their own unique perspective about what it takes to move beyond stuck and achieve their truest potential. Regardless of where you are, I am hopeful you will discover the inspiration and courage to make an impact in your own life. Let's get started. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Amy Moore. Amy is an intervention specialist who utilizes a two-step intervention approach that is based in love and healing. As one that struggled with her own dual addiction and watched some of her close family members do the same, she has developed a personal passion to serve and assist others. Watching other families escape the pain and devastation of addiction is constant motivation for her continued pursuit to help save lives and families. Amy uses a non-confrontational, loving method and is able to facilitate family meetings to discuss education, training, and group therapy, all in an effort to help the individual and the family establish a healthy day-to-day lifestyle. Amy enjoys spending time with her family, as well as hiking, snowboarding, gardening, and spending time in nature. Amy is also active in her recovery community and gives back to ensure her continued sobriety. She takes care of her own mental health and well-being by having her own support team in place for day-to-day life, as well as plenty of self-care. Amy, I'm thrilled to have you here today for another episode of Get Unstuck Radio. Um, Welcome. Thank you, Jason. I'm honored to be here. So we were introduced from a mutual friend recently, and I was fascinated with this concept of of interventionist. Um, Of course, I have watched the the television show Intervention, um, and I'm always fascinated by the people that do that work. And what I have learned in watching that show over the years that um, most people who do this work have their own personal story that brought them to doing this work, and it sounds like you do as well. Give us a little context for how, how did you get here? Absolutely. I mean, I I was brought up in a alcoholic home and I lived on a farm outside of Denver with no electricity, no running water. My dad was a chronic alcoholic, was drunk every single day. And, um, you know, I grew up in this tumultuous environment where my dad was 
drinking all the time and my mom was super religious. So I was in church every time the church doors were open. There was a lot of religious abuse that was happening. And of course, I said that I wasn't going to be like my dad and I definitely wasn't going to be like my mom. And growing up in this very sheltered environment, there was a lot of abuse, um, you know, like the the crap rolls downhill and right. my dad was abusing my mom and my mom was abusing all of us. And I had uh, siblings growing up and I pretty much was the, the caretaker for everybody, um, taking care of my siblings, making sure that they got their homework done, making sure that they ate, um, trying to keep everybody out of the, you know, out of the danger zone, really reading the room. Literally, I grew up in a war zone and I learned how to regulate a room from a very young age, probably seven years old. I was cooking and cleaning and making sure that the that the other siblings weren't doing anything to get themselves in trouble. And, uh, you know, when I was 14 years old, my dad was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver and they told him that he had six months left to live. My dad was my dad was my best friend. I mean, literally, I talked to my dad about everything. I really couldn't connect with my mom. She hated me. There was kind of a war between the North and the South going on in my house where my dad, from the day that I was born, um, bought a dozen red roses and brought them down to the hospital and told my mom, these are for my daughter, not for you. And so it really started this um, relationship with my mom where she was super jealous of me. And I was always kind of a daddy's girl. And um, the the date that they gave my dad was on my birthday, <laughs> on my 14th birthday. And, uh, you know, of course, I was scared and I didn't really know what it meant. And I knew my dad drank a lot and uh, gambled away his paycheck and everything in the in uh, the bars and stuff. But, you know, like I didn't really know I was young. Right. But I knew that there was a lot of craziness going on, that we rarely had food and had to go to like food banks and clothing banks in order to get um, stuff that we needed. We rarely had anything new and we lived like poor people. And my dad was making like $29 an hour. Wow. And this was, I mean, I was young, <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to give away how old I am. How, how you had a lack of facilities at, at, such a young age when it sounds like that didn't have to be the case. Right. Absolutely. Like we, we could have had electricity and running water, but my dad chose to have a fight with the neighbors and uh, they put a lien on our property. So we couldn't build, we couldn't, you know, do anything until that lien was off of our property because my dad took a, a gun and a knife and, you know, like all these things and start threatened our neighbor, <laughs> which was a very constant thing. My dad, threatened our bus driver with a double barrel shotgun. Then we had to literally walk one mile each way to the bus station. So when <laughs> so people talk people... about walking to school as a kid, your stories are no joke. Right, exactly. <laughs> a mile yeah. uphill in the snow all the way. <laughs> right. Literally being in Colorado, that would be an accurate story some days, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I thank you for being so vulnerable about sharing your story. And I and I would love to, I, I know your story is unique to you. I know in doing the work, you know that everybody um, often comes from uh, their own place of trauma and experience, which can often be equally painful as what you've just shared with us. But what re is resonant with me is from a very early age, you were indoctrinated into serve 
frankly, a role that was not yours to serve. I mean, you became a surrogate parent, so to speak, for your siblings. How common is that in, in the work that that you do with other people that you see that? I think I see it very, very often where people are put in a role that is not the role that they should have, where people are made to grow up before they should. And, you know, absolutely. I was a parent to my my siblings and I remember leaving home at 14 and seeing the look on my younger sister's face and saying, Amy, please don't leave us. You're the only, you're the only mom that we have. And, uh, you know, like, had I not gotten out, I don't know that I would be sitting here today, but, you know, I see things in the family units that I work with and the family dynamic that I work with, that's, you know, way worse than what I went through. And then some that aren't as bad, some that the, that the, um, abuse was emotional or, um, definitely not physical in a lot of the cases, but neglect, you know, we have a lot of people on this planet that both parents are working day in, day out, and they hardly ever see their children. My mom was there all the time, but she was behind closed doors. Right. You know, and, and while our stories are vastly different and how our upbringings were, I too was empowered from a very young age in a role that was really not my responsibility. And, and I would love to talk to you for just a minute about being empowered in those roles as a young person and what it really does and how it plays out in our own lives. Because frankly, when you take a child who is empowered in a way that they shouldn't be unnaturally early on, it empowers them and they develop sensitivities and mechanisms to navigate life from an unusually early powerful place that I think, frankly, has some pretty catastrophic consequence or can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I was a leader from the word go, really, probably since since I was really aware. And being an Awana's leader at church, and I really, really wanted to be a missionary to a third world country. That was like my dream. I sang in front of the church. I learned all of the Bible verses. I was always teaching young kids in church to do all these different things and to believe in Jesus and have this faith. And then I was sexually abused in the church, which turned me absolutely against religion and God because church was really my only safe place. You know, like it was the place that I went that I was like, all right, like this is my saving grace. And then that was no longer safe anymore. And I can't even imagine what that feels like to not feel safe anywhere in your world. You know, what shows up from that? I mean, um, it's just, it's out of order and how things are supposed to happen. Right. So yeah. You, you left home at 14. I'm guessing your journey started there. Like walk us through, you know, what was the decision? What 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 was pivotal about you leaving home at 14? So my dad died from cirrhosis of the liver when I was 14. Okay. And I met a guy the really the day that my dad went into the hospital. He went into the hospital July 1st of 1989. And I met a dude that night at a 4th of July party. It just so happened that our next door neighbor, who was like two miles away, had a 4th of July party. And we went over there and okay. I met this guy. And I really thought that he was going to be my saving grace. You know, like we instantly connected. We hung out every single day. And I just remember calling my dad and telling him about this guy. And he was like furious, 
absolutely <laughs> like furious and said, uh, you know, said all kinds of horrible things. And I, you know, like I was turning all of the feelings that I had about my dad being in the hospital over to this guy. And then 19 days later, my dad died from cirrhosis of the liver. And it was crazy. I, uh, my boyfriend at the time had a little Celica and we crashed it. My brother, he let my brother drive, who was a year younger than me. And we were doing like 90 on a dirt road right near us. Right. And he, you know, uh, rolled the car several times. And this happened the day after my dad died. And so, you know, this guy brought us back to the house and told my mom, you're lucky you don't have four dead kids. And, you know, the, the reality was like, I, I have to get out. I have to get out of this. My mom was absolutely nuts. She was like, um, I'm married to God now. And she, I was like, what is going on? I need to get out of here. Completely checked out on parenting altogether. (laughs) Completely checked out of parenting altogether. And so, you know, I found solace and some people that I knew at church and, uh, asked them if it was okay, if I moved in with them that I wanted to continue going to school. My mom wasn't really available to even take us to school. And I moved in with them. And not too long after that, I found out I was pregnant. Okay. And uh, of course, I wasn't going to tell my mom that I was pregnant. I had gotten gotten in trouble before that for sneaking out. And she hit me over a hundred times with a two by two stick. And I had black and blue blisters from the middle of my back to the backs of my knees, which was, you know, the ultimate decision why I left. Cause I knew that either she was going to kill me or I was going to kill her. And, you know, my brother and I talked about it several times and I'm like, I got to get out of here. I got to do just think different. it's not what childhood is supposed to be. I mean, it's no. not when you, when you think about what a healthy childhood is, none of the stories you've just told us track with what, you know, we perceive a healthy childhood should be. And yet, you know, here you are because of that story that you've gone on to do other things. But I I know you started this conversation with you vowed you didn't want to be like your dad. So I'm guessing things declined from there even. Right. So my mom said the only right thing for me to do would be to get married. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, I always thought that I should get married if I got pregnant or, you know, do it the other way, you know, get married and then get pregnant. But Uh, I got married at 15, a judge signed and my mother, and then I had, I gave birth to my daughter at 16. And I realized not too long after that, that I had married basically my dad. Um, although he wasn't an alcoholic, he was very violent. And this man choked me until I was blue. And, you know, somehow I got out, I think growing up the way that I did, that I made the decision to leave and at 18, which wasn't an easy decision, but a guy that I was dating at the time said, Amy, it's fine. You could have a couple of Jack Daniels Lynchburg lemonades and I'll watch you. And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, like two drinks can't do anything to somebody. Right. And I slammed those two drinks down, took his second drink, slammed that one down and sent him back to the liquor store for more. So really from the first time that I ever drank alcohol. I was a blackout drinker. I don't remember anything that happened that night. I woke up in the bathtub the next day, covered in my own vomit with my boyfriend laying on the floor next to me saying, Amy, if you ever drink again, I'm going to leave you. And I was like, like, what? Why? I mean, you said you were going to protect me. So what is this? And he said, well, I got back from the liquor store and you were in the shower with some other dude. I don't even know where this other guy came from, (laughs) nor do I remember the shower, but... 
You know, I, I feel like you, you've got a compelling book to write inside of you somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, the book is in the making for sure. Oh, I love it. Words, I love it. The words are on the page. It's just finding out what I'm going to do with it next. So, you know, without going into all the painful details that led you forward, I'm I'm guessing that was not the only time that you got drunk. But, you know, really fast forward to what was what was the turning point from taking all of these painful experiences that were inflicted upon you and then the ones that you inflicted upon yourself, um, you know, as you moved into adulthood, what was the turning point that said, no more, I can't do this? Well, it was a lot, you know, like I literally did everything that I said I wasn't going to do. I started putting needles in my arms. I started smoking crack. I started dealing drugs. I started carrying guns. I was uh, a scary person. And, you know, not because not because I was a scary person, it was because I was scared and fear does crazy things to people and it turns them into somebody that they're really not. And I ended up getting um, getting this new boyfriend. And of course, he was going to be, you know, another saving grace. And he asked me if I'd go to Maryland and meet meet the parents. And I never want to meet the parents, you know, (laughs) and that stops me from doing all the things that I want to do, which is like drink on a regular basis. And I was pretty young. So I was, I had a fake ID and all of this stuff so that I could drink and decided to go to Maryland, meet the parents, got, had my fake ID. He had gotten a a surgery and said, I don't like the way these pills make me feel. And I love the way the pills made me feel. So I'm drinking on the plane. I'm taking the pills and get to Maryland. Don't remember any of it. And the next thing I know, I'm on a plane back to Colorado and don't even remember anything that happened. Destroyed a lot of relationships. That's the last time I saw that guy. He was, you know, he was going to propose to me. He was a, you know, really great guy. And I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. And I came back to Colorado and decided that I was going to have the biggest and best party of all time. And I went down to the liquor store with my little hoopty party mobile, the little Chevy Chevette with the, that you have to park on the hill and pop the clutch to get it to go. (laughs) And, uh, uh, went down to the liquor store, put, you know, Bacardi breezers all the way to the roof and called my friends and said, I just got a credit card in the mail. I'm taking everybody to Las Vegas. We're going to go there and party with Metallica. Okay. And to this day, I don't know that Metallica was in Las Vegas. <laughs> so but, something uh, definitely had shifted. Something. something. So let's I took all my friends. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. I want to come up, back and wrap that up. And then I want to talk about the incredible work that you're doing as an interventionist that is really built upon this. So give us two minutes and we'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Stuck in a state of being that holds us back from creating the life we truly desire. Regardless of your own blocks or limitations, imagine an easier way to get unstuck and move forward with your life. On this show, Jason Hopkins shares his practical next right step approach that will move you toward the life you really want. You too can be steps from getting the abundance, love, support, and fulfillment your heart desires. Get unstuck. Move forward with your life with Jason Hopkins. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to the show. If you have a question for Jason or his guests... Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to the show with Jason. Welcome back to Get Unstuck Radio. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, and today I have Amy Moore with me. Amy is an interventionist, and before the break, she was sharing with us her living experience that really brought her to this place of doing the work to serve others. So when we left before the break, Amy, you were telling us about this incredible party. You'd gotten a new credit card. You loaded the Chevette with Bacardi Breezers, and you were going to take everybody to Las Vegas to see Metallica, even though you're not sure they were there. I can't imagine this ended well. Like, catch us up to what happened next. So next, we got to the airport. They wouldn't let any of us fly because we were all too drunk and, you know, doing whatever we were doing. And on the way back to my apartment, I got pulled over for doing Ace Ventura Pet Detective out the window, you know, driving with my foot and throwing empty Bacardi Breezer bottles into oncoming traffic. Okay. And doing 90 and a 30 running red lights. And the okay. cop that pulled us over said, what's going on? And I was like, I just won a million dollars. I don't remember any of this. This is stuff that I saw on the back of the ticket for sure. <laughs> And he let me go. My friends, not too long after that, were like, Amy, let us out of the car. You're going to get us killed. I went back to my apartment. I got dressed up in my wedding dress that I got married in at 15. And what I didn't tell you earlier is that it's it wasn't a traditional wedding dress. It was like a prom dress. It was orange because my mom said that I couldn't get married in white because I was a sinner. Correct. So I put this orange dress on that had lace down to the floor, put my Doc Martens on, put my hair in a bun on top of my head and decided that I was going to drive myself to Las Vegas. <laughs> okay. And uh, I was living right downtown Colorado Springs. And so, you know, not too long after I left my apartment, I saw red and blue lights in the review mirror. And I was like, look, my own personal escort to Las Vegas <laughs> and got onto the ramp of Bijou and I-25 in Colorado and threw my car into reverse and slammed into all the cop cars behind me. They don't like that too much. So okay. uh, they arrested me. And it's pretty uncomfortable to be to have your hands handcuffed behind your back, especially in a big dress like that. So I ripped the dress off, got the handcuffs around the front of me. And uh, I didn't know that you could get escape charges for that, but that's what they threatened me with. And um, I'm not a nice drunk. Like, I'm not a fun drunk. I'm not a, you know, happy <laughs> drunk. I'm a mean, violent, nasty drunk. Okay. <laughs> so so it's, it's fun until it's not. Yeah. It's fun until it's really not. And uh, I was spitting at the cops and, you know, kicking the window. And um, they hogtied me and maced me and threw me in the backseat of the car. And uh, my heart stopped. And I can tell you for a long time, I, I wished that... That was the end. 
and always wondered why, you know, like, why was I saved? And why didn't they wait five more minutes? And, uh, you know, it, uh, it took a long time to get to the place where I thought that I was worth living. And uh, I woke up in a hospital bed, handcuffed to the bed with charcoal down the front of my gown and an officer standing at the door saying, Amy, you're in big trouble. And I was like, for what? <laughs> and I, you know, I had a huge bruise on my leg and he was like first degree assault on two police officers and, you know, pages of other charges. Um, and I went straight from there to jail, ended up spending the next 65 days in solitary confinement, lost everything I had, got evicted from my apartment. Um, I was in, uh, school to be a medical assistant. I got kicked out of that. I lost custody of my daughter. And, you know, she was probably the only soft spot that I had. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that I didn't think about stopping drinking or anything that I was doing while I was in jail. I crossed off those days on the calendar and I was like, who could bring me a bottle of Bacardi 161 and a pack of Marble Reds so I don't have to feel the way that I'm feeling right now. I attempted suicide a couple of times while I was in jail. And, you know, I was obviously unsuccessful <laughs> or you'd have somebody different here today, but yeah. You know, and while our stories are completely different, I can identify with exactly those feelings of thinking, I wish the story had stopped there. And, you know, I don't know for you, there was always this piece that stopped me short of stopping the story for myself and recognizing this can't be all there is. Did you, what was the turning point that you hit your true rock bottom? Cause I'm guessing it was not in the back of that cop car necessarily. Like what, what changed all of this for you? So it wasn't that, and it wasn't the next time that I got arrested for aggravated motor vehicle theft and domestic violence. It wasn't any of those things. It was an emotional bottom. It was internal. It was something where I was like, this is Groundhog's Day. And it's, you know, like I'm depressed. I I don't know what to do. And I literally hadn't talked to my mother in years and called her and said, I'm depressed. Uh, I need help. And I really thought that help was going to come in the form of a pill. And my mom said, Amy, have you ever thought about going to drug and alcohol rehab? And I was like, for what? <laughs> you know, like, I don't have a problem. Right. And she said, is if you do. Isn't it interesting, though, that like the 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 starting point of your abuse and that cycle of abuse is the place you went back for more solace and support? Like, did you feel supported in that moment when you had that conversation, regardless of the fact that she was not offering you a pill? I think that she was the last person that I could call. I think I had burned every bridge. Like my mom was seriously the only person that would pick up the phone. And so, yes, in a way I did feel supported because she put somebody on the phone with me that prayed with me. I don't remember what this man said, but it was like this warm feeling, which today I know is hope that came over me. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe something can be different. And the fact that she said, if I went to treatment, that she would help me get my daughter back. I don't think that there's anything else that any person on this planet could have said to me other than that for me to actually go and get help. Wow. You know, I've I've entertained this question with a lot of people. In fact, through COVID, I did an entire series of listening sessions around that one question. Do you believe people have to hit rock bottom to seek sustainable recovery? Absolutely not. 
I think the bottom is always internal. And I believe that other people can raise the bottom for us. I believe that there is motivation that can happen for people that don't even want help, that there are people, especially the people that love you, that can compel you and motivate you to get the help that you know somewhere deep down inside that you need, but don't know how to ask for it. So I love that. And being that the context of this show is get unstuck, move forward with your life. I mean, it really feels like you had boxed yourself into a life to where you didn't perceive you had any other options. You were doing the same day over and over again with different outcomes and consequences. But what really stopped you in your tracks was this emotional hell of, I can't keep doing this. Right. You know, it doesn't sound like there was much left to lose. You had already kind of lost everything that was of value to you. And and here you were recreating the same day, day in and day out. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was hell. I, I can imagine it would be. And again, thank you for sharing your story. I mean, again, I know this is a, a sensational story compared to many stories that we've had on here, but I think it's so important that we highlight, you know, those sensational stories. And the reality is, is, you know, like Amy just said, and I agree with like, Rock bottom can be a continuum. It doesn't have to be the most catastrophic things that ever happened in your life on that day. And you choose to to make something different for yourself by your own admission. You did not choose those days. It was the it was the sustained consequence of waking up every day and doing this over and over again and saying, I can't do this anymore. Like something has to change. Absolutely. So I'm assuming from that point, did you go to rehab? So I did. I went to rehab. I was 21 years old. So I only drank for three years, drank and used drugs and did all that craziness. So like wow. the fast and the furious. <laughs> Got it <laughs> uh, out of system early. Yeah, exactly. And I went to a six month treatment program. And, okay. uh, you know, the last time that I drank was um, right after I got out of treatment. One of my friends, I found out I was pregnant with my second daughter while I was in treatment. And uh, one of my friends said, Amy, a glass of wine would be really good for the baby. And I was like, yeah, a glass of wine would be good for the baby. I've heard that everywhere. And I drank myself into a blackout, which I probably needed because there weren't many times over the course of those three years that I ever tried controlling drinking. And, you know, like I needed to know that even for the unborn baby inside of me, that I couldn't control my drinking, even if I wanted to. So you you had the wine, you got blackout drunk, did that? Did that give you the information you needed to to create sustained recovery? Absolutely. I mean, I I woke up in a hotel room with some dude I didn't know. I picked my clothes up off the floor. I didn't know where my car was. And I remembered my therapist in Salvation Army telling me, hey, Amy, go to Vitality. This is the place for you to go. And I went up there and and got the help that I needed and got a lot of other help too. You know, like it didn't stop at just going into recovery. I love that. So fast forward then, tell me, how did you take your living experience and move into recognizing that you had the gift to help other people in some of the worst times of their lives? So I've done a lot of things over the years. I was in Excelsior Girl School for a while, helping out with those girls that had those tumultuous relationships with their families. And I've had people over the course of my life telling me, hey, Amy, you should be a therapist. And I've never really wanted to be a therapist because I thought that that was kind of boring, like, you know, Groundhog's Day again all over (laughs) 
all over the place that I wanted something, you know, like something exciting. And it just kind of fell in my lap. Actually, I was, um, I was at a meeting one day and a man approached me and said, Amy, have you ever thought about being an interventionist? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's my dream job. Cause I too had watched intervention and this sober escort show. And I was like, Oh, you know, like I, I would totally love that. And he's like, your personality is perfect for it. You're a leader. And uh, I started training with another interventionist in 2012 and started sitting second seat and finding out like all the ins and outs of intervention. And I really had a knack for talking people into going and get help, even if they didn't think that they wanted it, even if they didn't think that they could succeed, which I think is one of the biggest things for people is that they don't think that they can succeed. They think that they've tried everything and, you know, coming across somebody that can go, yeah, but if you try it this way, or this is the science behind this, maybe it can be different this time. So really, you know, in in different words, you're helping give people the hope that you were met with by the man that prayed with you on the phone. Absolutely. You know, and 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 I'm guessing that's steeped in a lot of living experience yourself and recognizing that you know, from regardless of what the the outcomes are, typically the root cause of why most people end up addicted comes from the same place. I mean, it, it's a it's a manifestation of shame, really, isn't it? Right. Absolutely it is. You know, I was shameful for all the things that happened growing up and all the sexual stuff that happened and feeling like I was to blame for a lot of it. You know, you used that word earlier, that nasty F word, fear, you know, and how fear is so prevalent in the reasons that we do things positively or negatively in our lives How have you reconciled that word as you've navigated sustained recovery and then helping other people? Like, what are your thoughts on fear now, knowing what you know? Man, that's such a big topic. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) uh, fear, you know, fear is a motivator for me. You know, I've always gotten the two by four version of my life. And so I think that fear motivates me to do things that I wouldn't normally do. And, uh, gets me further than I ever thought that I could go. But fear is also a corroding thread, you know, like it can stop me. It can paralyze me in my tracks to not do certain things. And, um, you know, one of my favorite things when I think about fear is um, Blue October's song, Fear. You know, this motivation to get back up and use that fear as a motivator to go on with your life and to think, think back, like really use your past as a, as a rear view mirror. So you can look at that stuff and go, okay, you know, like it's not that today, but it's something different today. And I can walk through, I have the courage to walk through these little fears today and get to a different place. And by my example, I can show somebody else that they can do it too. And I think that for me, it's, that's the biggest thing. Cause I can get stuck in a analysis paralysis for right. sure. <laughs> right. You know, and I think I, I I'm thinking of those simple words of do it afraid. You know, I can even think yeah. in my own journey of recovery in recognizing that there were absolutely times that fear served me well. And, and again, like anything, I think there is a healthy balance and discernment in recognizing is this fear serving me, helping me, hurting me. And as you get further along in the journey, it becomes easier to navigate. Are you letting that be your roadblock or not? Don't you think? Yeah, 
Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've let fear motivate me to do the wrong thing before. Right. But today, I definitely know what the wrong thing is. So using that fear to kind of guide me into like, I know this is wrong and I don't know if this is really right, but I know what the wrong thing is to do. So I should go towards that right thing today. Well, in many ways, it sounds like those experiences, fear experiences have kind of served as the parental guidance that you needed all those years earlier. Right. You you were pulled out of the natural order of how things should have happened and kind of figured out on your own through some pretty um, unfortunate circumstances. But it feels like you've, throughout the course of your life and experience, been able to figure out this self-regulation, self-modulation, um, self-management, so to speak, around using fear as an internal compass to guide you forward or pull you back. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Do you feel like that that concept, though, is really a thread that pulls through most people's experiences? You know, you take that shame of them trying to not feel the things that they've used, you know, whatever their their uh, addiction is to numb. Do you feel like that sustained recovery really has this component of addressing fear and and appropriately right-sizing it in your life? Absolutely. Because I think that, you know, fear gives us motivation to, to, to be or do something different in our life. It, you know, like I think in my addiction, it stopped, it stopped me from doing anything from having any motivation whatsoever. Like fear just like put a, you know, a stop sign right in front of me today. Fear motivates me to take actions that I wouldn't have normally taken, you know, like it helps me be the person that I am today. And I think that with most people that I find the fear um, changed into like hope is a great motivator for them. Well, and I think the thing that I'm I'm hearing that I think we should qu- clarify is appropriate fear, inappropriate fear versus appropriate fear. And the fear that you're talking about really is that you know, that, that internal voice that says, I don't know if I should do this, or I'm scared to do this, or I don't know what the outcome is going to be. So I shouldn't do this or pull back. It's those things that we all come up against in life that we hit that, that internal wall that tells us I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. I'm not capable. And, and what you're, you're suggesting here is pushing against some of those internal voices and doing it afraid, right? Right. Doing it afraid and then recognizing that those internal voices that are inside of us is really our core beliefs and changing those core beliefs that no longer work for us into something new that does. So when I'm telling myself I'm not good enough or I'm going to be crazy like my mom or I'm going to go to hell for having sex before I got married or all of those things, then I can look at that and know that that's a big fat lie that I'm telling myself. And then what's the truth today? The truth today is that I am living in my truth, that I am not going to hell for doing all those things that I did back then, because that's not my belief. That was a belief that was instilled in me by church, by my mother. And we can find that our foundation is these beliefs that aren't even ours. And so I can trade those old beliefs in for something new that works. And that eliminates a lot of the fear. And I can tell you that I go through my day and many times I'm like, nope, that's a big fat lie. That's not true today. That That is not true. And I rarely judge myself based on the woman that I talked about earlier. I judge myself by the person that I am today. 
which eliminates a lot of that fear, staying out of the out of the past and out of the future. I don't borrow pain from things that haven't happened yet. I love that. And, you know, in my own life, I often have to remind myself if I hadn't been there, I wouldn't be here. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back after the break, I want to move a little more into what you've got going on in your world today and share all the fabulous things that, that you're doing um, to, to help others in their own journey of recovery. Be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions? Jan Jones wants to boost your energy and ignite the power inside you. The Good Good Life with Jan Jones. Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to the show. If you have a question for Jason or his guests, join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to the show with Jason. Welcome back to Get Unstuck Radio. Today, I have my guest, Amy Moore, with us. And Amy is an interventionist. And before the break, we were really talking about her own personal story that she brings to the conversation in helping others find sustained recovery in their life as an interventionist. I, again, am am grateful for your courage and just respect so much the fact that you've shown up here today with vulnerability and shared your story with us. And I know that that has become the foundation that really everything that you have today is built upon. Um, And we ended on those words of um, I sharing in my own journey that if I hadn't been there, I wouldn't be here. And I really believe that principle is such a guiding force. You know, I I've recently shared that I've, I've worked in the mental health space um, the better part of the last decade. And that started in a deeply personal journey of my own mental health recovery and and recognizing that for the better part of a decade, I have hated my undoing and that breakdown and those really painful times. And and honestly, Amy, it wasn't until last year that something happened that it occurred to me that I have spent a decade hating the story that built me into the person I am today that gets to do this work that I love to have conversations with humans like you that can make a difference, that can guide people into have a life of their imagination and expectation. And and frankly, I don't think I'm alone in being able to have that experience, but how long did it take you to really move from this, I'm sober now and becoming an interventionist? How long did it take you to move into this? I'm going to use the word worthiness of recognizing that that story was the reason that made you 
qualified to do the work that you were doing. Wow, Jason, that uh, brought tears to my eyes. So just hearing you say those words about yourself. And, uh, you know, I think it's incremental. It's uh, a million surrenders. It's a, a million tiny things on a million different days that I'm like, okay, you know, like I feel much better in this area after doing trauma therapy and going inpatient and doing some of this other things, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, like for once in my life, I feel like I was Humpty Dumpty back then. And now I'm put back together again. And, right. you know, like all the pieces are together and I can see the whole puzzle. And, um, you know, these promises get to come true in my life today that I get to be a whole person and I'm really living, not just surviving. And I think that as I do the work that I do with other families and do all the work that I do in order to be educated around addiction and my own personal story and self-care that I get better every single time that I do a belief inventory or I, you know, talk to somebody like you and find these different ways to look at things and go, oh yeah, you know, like that is a much better way of looking at it and that I don't beat myself up today and I don't say negative things about myself and I don't borrow pain from the past and I don't borrow pain from the future. And if those thoughts start coming in, I remind myself that that's a lie and utilize the word today. You know, and all those five senses that come into today, be present right here. I love that power of presence and really honoring. I mean, there's so many, as an adult child of an alcoholic, I spent a lot of years in Al-Anon and I think there's so many great principles in the 12 step program, but you know, there is this notion of today and presence that is so omnipresent in that program. And, you know, I, I heard somebody say the other day, that if you're looking forward or looking backward in your life, you're never in the present. And I think about for anybody who's listening, that that if you get still with yourself and think about your thoughts, how many of them are dominated by past or future thoughts and really robbing yourself of this, this, this notion of presence. But I also want to acknowledge the fact by what you just shared with us so beautifully was finding our place in this world is really based on a series of experience and moments that happen again and again and again. And it's not like we arrive at this destination and everything's perfect. I mean, you know, for somebody that's listening, Amy, who is struggling, who is on the verge of reaching out, wants to reach out, knows their life is a mess, that things are unsustainable. What's an appropriate next step if you're in that really dark place of despair? I think that for most people that I work with, it's taking just one simple step. It's making that one phone call. It's finding somebody else that has been through what you've been through that can offer just a even like a speck, like a glitter speck of hope that you can do something different. And really, you know, with what I do, I rarely talk to the person that is in addiction or mental health first. I talk to the family. And right. it takes them a lot to pick up that phone and to reach out. It's usually a last ditch effort. And I really wish that people would, you know, speed up that process and make it, you know, like a medium effort, you know, like instead of the last thing they try, maybe the middle thing they try or the first thing that they try in order to get that person help. But when I'm standing or sitting in front of that person and telling them my story and letting them know that, you know, like don't ever give up. Just like you wouldn't give up if you had a brain tumor, you would go and get all the help on the planet that you possibly right. could. 
If right. it didn't work the 10th time, you would do it again. So let's do it one more time. Let's try something different and see if this time it works. Well, and I love what you said a minute ago about, you know, making making intervention a medium effort. And I think so many people, and this is why I'm so fascinated by this concept of rock bottom. I think so many people, especially caregivers and loved ones, at some point resign themselves to my loved one has to hit rock bottom. And by what we talked about earlier, the reality is, is rock bottom is a very elusive thing that can look very different for anybody. So if you're a family member or loved one that's listening, that's waiting for your loved one to hit rock bottom, what you're suggesting here is an intervention may be the very thing that realizes that in their head, they're already at rock bottom. It just may not look the way you imagined it would. Right. Absolutely. A million I mean, times. I don't believe people have to lose everything to recover. Oh. I did. You did. But the fact of the matter right. is, is I think that's what makes us the perfect guides to do this work. But I don't believe people have to lose everything to recover. I believe that 100%. I think that we can raise the bottom for people and that nobody can see an emotional bottom on somebody. That if you're at a bottom as a family member, if you're at a bottom, if you're frustrated, that is bottom enough to raise the bottom for your loved one because most people's rock bottom is death. So do we want to see our loved ones die? Because ultimately, when people raise up their hands or stand back or use tough love, that is what they're doing. They're just resigning to the fact that that person is no longer going to be with us. Right. And so if I'm a family member or a loved one that's listening that has somebody that's in a painful spot, where do they find the the hope or the courage to make that next step? And I love that in my own work. You know, I've coined this concept of next right step. I think that's all we're asked of in life and not just in recovery in life in general is just taking the next right step what what is the inspiration point that you think would would be beneficial for somebody to consider looking at an intervention as a next right step even if they've never even considered it right i think that most families when i talk to them for the first time it's really educating them and letting them know that your family member cannot make a decision on their own their prefrontal cortex is shut off. And so if you're if you're not thinking, if you don't have executive thinking, if you don't have the ability to see yourself properly, you cannot make a decision to change. And so a family member, a team coming together and saying, hey, this is what we've noticed and this is what we think that we can do in order to help you is so effective because it gets that prefrontal cortex turned back on where they can actually be a part of the conversation, even if it's only for a brief amount of time. And the family doesn't really understand that. That when they're talking to somebody about addiction, per se, that you're basically threatening their life. So every dialogue that you have with your family member, they're going to treat you like they're like you're threatening their life because you are. Right. So flipping the script. On and them. I just think about, you know, how different it could have been if if young Amy had parents that had sat down with her and had these conversations from this this place of of incredible love, honestly. And again, I'm not, I'm not discounting or changing your story at all, but, you know, as an example, I mean, I think so, so often people feel victimized or um, victimized is the right word by their family members or their family of origins. And that's how a lot of these, you know, these seeds get planted to begin with. 
But I do think that there is an opportunity that through somebody's experience of addiction and their journey towards recovery, I do think there is a way that that the family system can get better. It's not impossible for parents to have been wrong and to at some point say, I was wrong. I did not serve you well. And that may have resulted in these consequences. And I am here to show up today because I recognize I was wrong. I want to help you. And and then hopefully we all get better from doing our own individual work that results in a, you know, a healthier outcome. That is possible, isn't it? Absolutely. Nobody gets to stay healthy in sickness. Everybody gets sick. You well, know, and the reality is everybody has a role in a family. Everybody plays a role. I know in your family, y- you were a caretaker from a very young age. That was not your role to play. In hindsight, I, I don't know if your mother ever made men- amends about putting you in that role or not. Doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is, is owning that and understanding that goes a long way in recognizing how the wheels come off the wagon in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, seriously, I, t- I tell my families, like, let's be clear, it takes a year for the brain to change when this person goes into recovery, when this person starts doing something different. And it also takes that long for you guys to get something different out of your life. And so coming together as a cohesive team, we can do something different with our lives. And everybody operates with their best tools. Most of us don't have very good tools. So it's learning a new skill set. It's learning to put some new tools in your toolbox so that you can operate on the best operating level that you can. You wouldn't use your 1995 computer. No, you update the system so that you're on the best operating level. You know, I look at this as, you know, I think as humans, I want to give people the grace that I believe we do our best and recognizing that sometimes our best is not good enough. Right. That recognition and understanding, I think, is the open door for us to have an invitation to walk through and say, hey, I, I, I did my best, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And now I'm going to attempt to do better. Like, I think there's real grace in in that experience um, that can can guide people in in figuring out how do they heal some of the things that have wounded them. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, as a professional, I know how to deal with addiction because I'm trained to. Family members should not know how to navigate addiction or how to do things differently. They should hire somebody that can come in and help them navigate that so that everybody is healthier all the way around so that they can take that role of healing those relationships and really becoming those family members that they were always meant to be. Right. Well, Amy, I would be remiss if I didn't give people an opportunity to get connected to you and the work you do. You do actively do this work for other people. Tell our listeners how they can connect, get connected to you and, and the, the work that you guide. My website is www.adrunkwhisperer.com. And my phone number is 303-915-7072. You can find me on Facebook under adrunkwhisperer.com as well. And on Instagram, adrunkwhisperer. I love that. Amy, I am so grateful that you were here today. And again, just applaud your vulnerability and sharing your story and doing the work you do. You know, I know these are hard conversations for us to have, but I just feel so committedly in doing this work on Get Unstuck Radio, that it is important for us to highlight what's real. And the fact of the matter is, is the glossy version of life 
that we're seeing play out on on social media today like it's a highlight reel it's not it's not it's not real world and i think it's because of champions like you having conversations like this that we are able to unearth and hopefully help others get connected in a way that they're currently not yes absolutely and if you've not yet subscribed to our Get Unstuck Radio show pages, you can find us at Get Unstuck Radio on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Next week, we have another inspiring guest. I guarantee you will not want to miss the conversation. Amy, before we wrap up today, I always like to end the note, the conversation on a high note. Tell me something you're grateful for today. I am super grateful for my sobriety. I'm 26 years sober and my little grandbabies, you know, like uh, pretty much my life today is taking care of those little guys and my family and just recognizing that today I get to do something different than what I was brought up with and uh, make that living amends to not only myself, but to my family. I love that. And I'm so grateful to hear that you were able to heal that generational trauma that allows you to show up in a way that that you probably were not immediately destined to show up for. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the conversation today. Until next time, remember, every journey begins with a next step and you too can be your own champion. Thank you. Join us again soon on Get Unstuck Radio. Thanks for listening to today's show. We hope we've helped you identify how you can overcome the mental block that's been keeping you stuck. Until we talk again, we wish you a great week.